when the talk was done and launched into what he called the natural history of the boardroom. In the upper echelons at company headquarters, he said, the conference tables are circular rather than rectangular, ostensibly for a round-table atmosphere of equality. Well, bollocks, he said. In fact, there is a distinct hierarchy, and everybody knows where everybody else stands or sits in it. The circular form merely makes the combat a little more open. In a week or two, he said, he'd be heading overseas for a meeting of a committee where the chairman had lately vacated his seat. No one will say anything, but everyone will be looking at that seat and wondering who's going to take it, whether anyone will have the audacity to sit there. You should sit there, the head of sales ventured. No, I'd be like the baboon trying to rise three steps above his rank. I'd get knocked down. He was a realist, yet keen for the combativeness that would inevitably surface. I love it, he said. Sometimes when there's a kill about to happen, there's a moment of hesitation when people aren't sure if it's going to happen. By now, my eyes were beginning to widen. And then they get the scent, and they know it's going to be okay, and they know who's going to take the lead and who's going to come in for the kill. It's like the Serengeti, the sales guy agreed. The round table just makes it easier for everybody to see the kill. Jesus, I said. Don't worry, the head guy's wife interjected, taking him gently by the elbow. I'm really in control here. And everybody laughed. Maybe I shouldn't have been surprised that some business people are in fact entirely prepared to liken themselves to bare-ass monkeys. They just want to be dominant, predatory bare-ass monkeys. Animal analogies have always ranked among the favorite clichés of the business world, where 800-pound gorillas run with the big dogs, swim with the sharks, occasionally find themselves up to their asses in alligators, and, if they are not crazy like a fox, can end up caught like a deer in the headlights. When Richard Kinder quit Enron to form his own gas company in 1996, he disguised his dismay with Kenneth Lay's leadership under a standard animalism. If you aren't the lead dog, the scenery never changes. Even the eminently clever satirist Scott Adams ended up likening almost everybody in the working world of his anti-hero Dilbert to a weasel. The truth beneath the clichés is that the lives of animals are not nearly so simple as we used to think, nor are the lives of working people so complex as we like to believe. Moreover, the two have a lot in common, and not just in the obvious ways. For instance, aggressive business types often employ animal analogies because they mistake them for the art of war by other means. The idea of animal troops ruled by demonic males dishing out nature red in tooth and claw appeals to a certain view of business life. It really is a goddamn jungle out there. And don't get me wrong, this is a very entertaining view. Like my North American division chief, we all love a good brawl if only from a safe distance. But it's also a narrow, misleading point of view. Here's the sort of surprising thing we can learn from a more careful look at the animal world. Even chimps spend only about 5% of their day in aggressive encounters. By contrast, they devote as much as 20% of the working day to grooming family, friends, and even subordinates. When they fight with rivals in the troop, they often go well out of their way, after the dust settles, to kiss and make up. And why should working people care how chimpanzees resolve their conflicts? 
because our social behaviors and theirs evolved from the same ancestors and still follow many of the same rules. Even in our everyday working lives, human bosses, like alpha chimps, sometimes drive their underlings beyond any reasonable limits. They might do better in life and in business if they understood just how far even a dumb ape will go to achieve harmony in the aftermath of conflict. Shining an evolutionary light on the workplace isn't just a clever way to rationalize bad behavior or to find simple-minded justifications for maintaining the status quo. It is a useful approach to survival in the workplace. Moreover, it's an approach that applies to any workplace, whether the workers happen to be greeting customers at a Walmart in Los Angeles or hanging Warhols at the Tate Modern in London or stamping out toasters at a higher company plant in Qingdao, China. Understanding evolutionary propensities can help us manage conflict, build useful alliances, avoid backstabbings, survive boardroom assassination attempts, and understand the unspoken emotions revealed by the facial expressions of the people around us. It can at times help companies manage the workplace to accommodate things people do naturally. For instance, W.L. Gorin Company, maker of Gore-Tex, has chosen to keep its plants and offices at what feels like a comfortable human scale, under 200 employees. This is close to the maximum size of the tribal clans in which human society evolved, and some biologists say our brains are actually built to operate on this social scale. It isn't what most companies mean when they talk about right-sizing, but Gore employees say it feels like the right size for working together effectively. Ignoring evolutionary and biological propensities, on the other hand, often proves disastrous. For instance, the U.S. military has traditionally organized itself into companies of roughly the same tribal clan size, subdivided into platoons where 30 or so soldiers train together and develop the kind of tight, cohesive bond needed for deadly combat. But in the 1960s, corporate-style managers tried to rethink this traditional structure and override human nature. Managerial types have always relished the idea of business as war, but it was a much worse mistake to believe they could wage war as business. The introduction of assembly line practices meant that soldiers rotated into the Vietnam War as individuals on 12-month tours, not as part of a tightly bonded social group. Their officers moved through even faster, getting their combat tickets punched for the purpose of career advancement, instead of having their lives bound to the survival and success of their foot soldiers. One victim of this thinking later suggested that the military would have been better off had it treated its troops literally like dogs. Now, this is strange. The only reason I got to go to Nam with the unit I trained with is because I was in the Canine Corps. See, the army knew that the dogs would get depressed if they were broken up, so they kept them together, so the trainers got to stick together, too. But almost everybody else went in alone, just interchangeable parts like ammo clips or mortar shells. The army figured if you were a mortar man, you could do your job in any unit, so it didn't matter what unit you were with or if you had any buddies there or anything. It's funny when you think about it, funny and sick. The army knew it was bad for the dogs to get split up, but it was okay for guys to go to hell all alone. This is the characteristic error of our time, if not of our species, 
We tell ourselves that we are rational beings, not animals, that we are in control of our post-biological world. We certainly don't allow biology or emotions to control us. I don't do feelings, Sun Microsystems CEO Scott McNeely recently declared, with apparent contempt. I'll leave that to Barry Manilow. In this view, work, and even warfare, is a purely logical business of balancing pros and cons to maximize profit and minimize loss. The truth, of course, is the opposite. We are emotional animals, and an evolutionary and anthropological view of the workplace is essential for survival in a competitive struggle that seems increasingly Darwinian. The workplace has supplanted the tribe, the community, and even the family as the focus of our lives, and it has become the arena for all the behaviors that originally evolved in those contexts. Understanding our evolutionary and anthropological propensities has become even more important as our jobs have become less secure. The realization has crept up the ranks from the assembly line to customer service to engineers and even upper management that their jobs could be outsourced any day now to someone in Bangalore willing to do the same work for a fraction of the pay. Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns now hire MBA financial analysts in India starting at $800 a month. Workers in Bangalore are in turn acutely aware that a shift in currency rates or a period of political turmoil could just as easily send their jobs to Kuala Lumpur or to Ciudad Juarez. Even if we manage to keep our jobs, we now routinely participate via high technology in work groups with people in such distant locales. It's becoming a job requirement to get past mere cultural differences and figure out how to replicate ties of trust, comfort, collaboration, and hierarchy that exist.